Then I saw with the right hand him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scrolls and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, set out into all the earth. And he went, and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamp, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. It is a joy to be with you. I was really honored and I'm grateful to you for the invitation to be here for the warm welcome of Chris and Jared and to the many that I've met. This is a, a special time in the life of this church, a 50th anniversary. I've just learned that there's a time capsule hiding in the wall that's going to be brought out. I think that could be a very interesting sort of marker of what God has done in these 50 years. It's also the 50th year of the PCA and this region in this presbytery plays a special role there. And from all of us at Beeson Divinity School, we recognize a special relationship. And we have been ministered to by this church and this presbytery. So thank you. But to come and to open God's word in a way that's faithful to this church and to the Presbyterian Church in America wouldn't be to talk about this church and the Presbyterian Church in America. It would be to remember, in some sense, the Reformation, but even that, not an end in itself. To remember the Reformation because it was a meaningful time of reading, rediscovering, and reannouncing the gospel of Jesus Christ at the Word of God posted. Scripture is like that finger of John the Baptist that points to the Lamb of God and says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins. Of the world. And that witness to the Lamb 
leads to the worship of the Lamb that is worthy. This message of God's grace that leads to our praise of God's glory. And I hope that's what we will do together today. So let's pray, and then let's hear from God. Almighty God, thank you for the gift that it is to gather. Thank you for the promise that when we do so, in the name of your Son, you are present. And because you are present, you are the living God. We ask you to speak and act through your living and active word. And we ask you to do two things. Show us that we need Jesus and give us Jesus. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we'll start by telling you a story. It's a story that it's possible some of you will know. It's a story that takes place about two years after a story that you probably do know. Most people, when they think about the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, think about a German friar named Martin Luther in a small town in Wittenberg posting some theses as a protest against the practice of indulgences. And that's the right place to start talking about the Reformation in general. But if you want to be a little more specific and talk about when the Reformation came to the English-speaking world, you need to fast forward to 1590, to another small town with the university, the city of Cambridge, and there was a lot happening at that time in Cambridge. The most significant scholarly event in the life of that city over the last 10 years had been that the academic superstar, there used to be such a thing, we missed both, those of us who currently do this job, but there used to be a time when you were an international celebrity if you were a good enough scholar. And there was a Dutch humanist scholar named Erasmus who had been invited to England by John Fisher. And he came to Queen's College to work on a big project. He was consulting various manuscripts that were scattered around Europe to try to produce a more faithful, reliable, well-documented edition of the Greek New Testament. That was his big scholarly project. He did that. He got a Greek edition of the New Testament in order, and then he translated it himself into a new Latin edition. And there was this gentleman named Thomas Bilney, who was in a small Cambridge college called Trinity Hall, and Bilney got really excited. He really wanted to read Erasmus's Latin translation of the critical edition of the Greek New Testament. This is about as academic <laughs> as you can get of a moment. Oh, a critical Greek edition, a Latin translation by Erasmus. I can't wait to read it. Now, Bilney tells us, though, I didn't want to read it because of its content. It didn't really matter that it was the New Testament. He said, I read it because I wanted to savor the eloquence of Erasmus's Latin. That was his own personal motivation. Turns out the living and active word had other plans. But Bilney comes to this text. And he tells us that when he read it, 1519, 
inside an obscure little Cambridge college called Trinity Hall. This gentleman who's always remembered in history as little Thomas Bilby says, in the moment of my reading, my heart was wounded with the guilt of my sins. I was almost in despair and my bones were bruised. Now, he didn't initially connect the two. That's just how he felt. That was the condition he was in, and he got his hands on the New Testament to enjoy the impressive, eloquent Latin of Erasmus. I'll tell you in just a moment what happened when he read. But I think if we're going to hear it at the appropriate pitch, of human need and human hurt that this encounter played out. It's worth telling you one more story. This takes place in the 19th century, and it takes place in a very short novel by George Eliot. It's called Janet's Repentance. George Eliot, if you know George Eliot, is more famous for works like Middlemarch and Silas Mariner and Mill on the Floss, these big novels. But her first sort of experiments with fiction were in these three small stories called Scenes of Clerical Life. And the last one, Janet's Repentance, I commend to you as probably the most sympathetic portrayal of a minister, especially a minister in the kind of evangelical Reformation tradition in all of 19th century literature. And what happens is this woman named Janet is in a marriage that she got into with a little bit of rebellion and defiance and against her own better judgment, and certainly against the better judgment of her mother and others. Though, as you know, if you express your better judgment that this is maybe not a good marriage to get into, it might make it more likely that the person winds up in it. Janet's in this situation, but it's not a safe or good situation. Her husband drinks, and when her husband drinks, her husband is emotionally, verbally, and sometimes physically violent. And Janet is at the end of her resources. And in one particularly extreme moment, he forces her out into the cold of an English winter's night. And she's reached a point where she says, I had no strength whether to live or to die. But she just sort of admits to a neighbor, something's going on, can I have a place to stay. And her neighbor lets her in, and we're told that up until this point, everything that had come to Janet had been just barren exhortations. She had been told to do good, to keep a clear conscience, to make some new resolutions. But she says, when I look back at my history, it's just a history of broken resolutions, of trying, but often failing to do good. And all this Good, well-meaning advice was, quote, feeble words. They didn't actually help. And so her neighbor, who is well-meaning, but doesn't know how to help, says, is there anyone you'd like to talk to? And she says, well, you remember that new minister that came to town that we always used to laugh at because he seemed to be, quote, very fond of great sinners? We used to think that was funny. Now it sounds like maybe he's the only one I could talk to. And there's this scene where they have this profound encounter. Janet says to him, 
I want you to know how weak and how wicked I feel. I don't know if you've ever met anyone like me who got me, but I just thought maybe you would have something to say. In, in her honest need, pain, and desperation, she asked this question. Can you give me any comfort? Is there any hope? And I think that question, is there any comfort? Is there any hope? Is a kind of honest bonfire that demands that we throw into it anything that might be a source of firm hope, comfort, rescue, significance, meaning, anything that might be worthy to save, anything that might count as a gospel or good news. In many ways, this is what the Reformation was. It was this kind of testing fire against honest human pain and sin and need and death, tested by the Word of God what actually is a source of comfort and hope. And a lot of things didn't pass that test. They turned to ashes in the fire of honest human need. But when Billy was reading, feeling that question with bruised bones and being almost in despair, something happened. He's reading along and he says, at last I heard speak of Jesus when the New Testament was set forth by Erasmus. I bought it by the providence of God, and I do well understand and perceive. And at the first reading, I chanced upon this sentence of Paul, O oh, sweet and comfortable sentence to my soul. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, it says, it is a true saying and worthy of all men to be embraced that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This one sentence, through God's instruction and more working, which I did not then perceive, did so exhilarate my heart, which had been wounded with the guilt of my sins, and though I was almost in despair, immediately I felt a marvelous comfort and quietness so much so that my bruised bones leapt for joy. The Word of God communicating the Gospel. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners as an actual word of comfort and hope. This is the reality that we call the Reformation. And actually, this very language runs right through its earliest phases. It's a little-known fact that the very first document that we can confidently say Martin Luther wrote after some of his Reformation wrestlings and trying to figure things out and transitions, right? Because things like the 95 Theses were kind of protests, asking questions, we need to think this through. But in 1518, he wrote a text. It still hasn't been translated into English, by the way. It's almost looking for a PhD thesis or something like that. It's a text called An Inquiry into Truth for the Consolation of Troubled Consciences. 
We're going to ask what's true, but we're going to do it so we can speak the word comfort. Or maybe you know that in the English Reformation, in 1552, the worship service included these lines. Hear what comfortable words our Lord Jesus Christ says. And then just quotes four passages of Scripture. One of them is, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Another is from Matthew 11. Come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Another is John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Another is from 1 John. If any person sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Just a little bit later, in the city of Heidelberg, a catechism was drawn up. It became more significant after its initial place in the Netherlands, and it's still one of the principal confessional documents of the Dutch Reformed tradition. You might know the Heidelberg Catechism in its somewhat famous first question, what is my only comfort in life and death? And the answer, that I am not my own, but I belong in body and soul, in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And what I hope, as we turn to Revelation 5, is we'll hear both of those words today. That our comfort comes from having revealed to us by God's good word that we are not our own, that we are not finally the source of comfort in hope, but that there's one who is. That the lion who has conquered is the lamb that was slain, and that one is worthy. And our only comfort is that we belong not to ourselves, which is something God has to show us, but to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, which is God's firm and final word to you that lets you join the song. So let's see in our time together how Revelation 5 points us to those two things. But Revelation 5 this is probably not going to surprise you, comes after Revelation 4. For Revelation 4 is a very significant moment in the book of Revelation. It begins the revelation, or the apocalypse, or the unveiling of Jesus Christ. That's what the book of Revelation is. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what we get to see in the book of Revelation. And when this unveiling happens, the curtain that clouds our perception and doesn't let us see what's fully and finally real goes up. And we get to behold reality. And this revelation happens, and we're told that letters go out to seven different churches, so that's who's going to encounter this revelation. They're in very different situations and circumstances, but they all need the same revelation of Jesus Christ, and there's a word for churches and pastors there, that in different situations, when you encounter people with different forms of suffering and sin and need, they still need the revelation of Jesus Christ. But we get through the letters to the seven churches, and then in Revelation 4, we finally get to see what's behind the curtain. 
And at the heart of reality is God who is on the throne and is being endlessly worshipped by living creatures and by elders. And we hear, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Worthy are you, our God, and see glory and power and honor. That's reality. God is on the throne. But in that story and in that endless song, where do we fit? It's clear that we're not on the throne, but where do we fit? And Revelation 5 has something profound to say about that. When we open Revelation 5, God is still on God's throne, and in God's right hand is a scroll. And a strong angel, it says, comes out and says, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And they look around, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to break its seals. And in verse 4, John the seer says, And I began to weep because no one was worthy. Here's that first revelation we need. Revelation we need about ourselves. In many ways, the strong angel's question, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals, is the question that haunts and drives and motivates so much of human history and so much of our own lives. This quest to find, to be, to achieve worthiness. To find some way that our place in the story will answer the question, who is worthy with we are, I am. And if you would think, if there's any place in all creation where you were going to find one that was worthy, it would be here. You've got living creatures, you've got 24 elders, you've got angels, you even have a strong angel, you've got John the seer. If anyone on earth, or in heaven, or under the earth, we find out later in the sea, is going to be worthy, surely they're present. And yet this strong angel asks the question, and they literally look everywhere and at everyone. And the verdict comes back. No one was worthy. Because there's only one that sits on the throne. And what is revealed in that moment is that whoever we are, we're not the one on the throne. We are not the God who is holy, 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 who was and is and is to come. And that's something that God loves us enough to tell us the truth about. It's precisely the thing the enemy told us a lie about. You will not die. You will be like God. And human history is haunted and shaped by that lie. He searches for worthiness. There's a line in a poem by George Herbert who said, The human being is a creature that is sighing to be approved. And I think that gets pretty close to the heart of what it feels like and what it hurts like to be a human being. There are whole cultures that have actually recognized and celebrated the way human beings compare and compete for this kind of worthiness. 
The way the archaic and classical Greeks remembered the Bronze Age was as a time of great heroes who fought for and competed for and found glory. But the Greek word for this is kleos, and it means both glory or fame, but it also means the song in which that fame is recorded and remembered and repeated. So if you read Homer's Iliad, which is about the last year of the Trojan War, Achilles says there, well, if I don't fight and I go home, I know I'll live a long life, but everyone will forget me. But if I lay siege to Troy, even though I die, my kleos, my glory, my song will never die. And similarly, Helen, Helen of Sparta, who's taken, becomes Helen of Troy, says they're going to sing our song, Cleos, for a thousand generations. That's the hope, to find glory. But the truth is, as Revelation sees, that no human biography is strong enough to carry the weight of our belovedness or of our worth. We are not the one on the throne. And God's word that is living and active reveals that truth. And sometimes it's hard. And it leaves us weeping like John because no one is worthy. We do ache as Ernst Becker puts it in his book, The Denial of Death, we do ache for cosmic specialness. But whatever specialness we have, it's not that we get to play God's role in the story of salvation. This song, holy, 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 is not finally sung about us. Though as we'll see, it does get to be sung by us to the one who is. And the way the Protestant reformers talked about God revealing this reality to us, that we're not on the throne, that we're not God, that we're not the Creator, that we're not the Savior, that we're not worthy. They talked about God doing this through His holy, righteous, and good law. Romans 3 says, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It tells us the truth about who we are not. Martin Luther put it this way, the first thing about sin and death is taught us by the law. And so one must preach the law so that people come to a knowledge of their sins. Or, if you want to go a few years later, you get to when Queen Elizabeth was on the throne in England and a Puritan theologian in the Elizabethan church named William Perkins put it this way. When the word is preached, the law and the gospel operate differently. The law exposes the disease of sin, but it is not the law that provides the remedy for it. We'll get to the remedy in just a moment. But let's not pole vault over this first uncomfortable but needed part. That God loves us enough to show us what's real. Despite our protests, despite our pretending, 
despite the lie that haunts our history and our own lives, we are not God. We are not worthy to approach the throne and take the scroll. Billy's bones were bruised. John's eyes are full of tears. And maybe all of us find ourselves saying, like Paul in Romans 7, who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? Or with the psalmist, I lifted up my eyes to the hills. Where will my help come from? That's where we are in Revelation 5, verse 4. But that's not the last thing that happens in this scene. That's not the final word. And what happens actually happens because a kind of minister shows up. A kind of ministry, a kind of preaching takes place. But it's not because the minister is particularly worthy. We've just looked above the earth and on the earth and under the earth and no one was worthy. But in chapter 5, verse 5, it says, One of the elders said to me, now, apparently, this elder is numbered among the not worthy. And that's not why they have a special role of life. And so this elder doesn't come and say, you don't have to be upset and look at me. That's not what happens at all. This unworthy elder comes to this unworthy and weeping John and says, Weep no more. And then he tells us why. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered, so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Don't look all around creation. Don't look at yourself. Don't look at me. But behold, the lion who has conquered. And John says, And I looked. Followed the finger of that preacher to look at the lion, and what I saw is a lamb standing as though he had been slain. And that lamb, verse 7, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And then the elders and the living creatures break into a new song. It's a lot like the eternal song from chapter 4, that they sing to the one who's on the throne, but this time it explicitly includes the Lamb in the worship of that one God. This is Revelation's clear and profound and powerful way of saying that Jesus Christ is one with the one God of Israel, the Creator, the Redeemer, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the God we meet in the Lion that is the slain Lamb, and they sing, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to break its seals. For you were slain by your blood to ransom people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And there's some amazing moment. John starts looking around. It's a lot like the way he looked around when the strong angel said, Is anyone worthy? And he looks above the earth, and he looks on the earth, and he looks under the earth. Jared says he also looked in the sea. But what happened in that first looking 
when the question was, is anyone worthy to approach the God who is on God's throne? And the answer was no, followed by weeping. This is a different kind of looking. He's not looking for those who are worthy now. He's already found the one who is worthy. Because the elder said, behold the lion, and he looked and I saw the lamb. And now when he looks around in all those same places, with the sea thrown in, all of creation, he doesn't see those who are worthy, but because the one who is worthy has been slain, and by his blood he has ransomed the people from God, he looks around, and he sees a whole chorus of creation joining in worship. First, myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands of angels. But finally, every creature comes and sings the song. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory forever and ever, it says. Can't help but think again of that quest for claims, both for glory, but also for the song that will record and remember and repeat it. Achilles, I don't think, gets eternal God life for glory. But one does. There's one whose life, whose death, whose resurrection, both is glorious, and one whose glory will be forever repeated and remembered. There's one who has lived a song-worthy life, and there's one who is worthy of our song. The Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And so when this vision of reality unfolds, we get God on God's throne. We get an honest recognition that we are not that God. But in the place of our honest asking, at the sight of real tears, is there any comfort? Is there any hope? The word comes, Behold the Lamb of God. And when we see the one who is worthy, and whose worthiness has taken the form of a life and death that has ransomed people for God, we find out that the story goes from endless worship to an honest encounter with our unworthiness, with some weakness. But that the one we're worshiping is the one who is worthy in such a way that his glory doesn't keep us out, but invites us in. And the unworthy become those who worship, who join the song. This is a reality check. And in this reality, all the glory is going to God. The only one who is worthy and saves is Christ, Solus Christus. We are included in this story only because of the grace that led to this shedding of blood. This is grace alone, sola.
story started with the glory of God, that's where it ends as well. And the living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. If there was ever a job description for elders, it's in Revelation chapter 5. The elders do two things. They say to the weeping, Behold the lion that is the lamb. They're witnesses to the worthy lamb. Fall on their face and they join in the worship of the <coughs> Praise God that He calls elders. But let's not forget that what He calls elders to is the witness to the Lamb and the worship of the Lamb. And in that reality, I think we hear afresh and again. The good news that's announced in that first question from the Heidelberg Catechism. Our comfort is that we are not our own. We're not worthy. We're not on our own. But that we belong in body and soul, in life and death, to your faithful Savior, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of Jesse, the conquering Lion who is the slain Lamb. You belong. That vision of reality is not just a vision, but it is the truth for the sake of troubled consciences, as Martin Luther said. I think the weight of our own world, our quest for chaos, is lifted off our shoulders as it's carried by the one who said, Come unto me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you peace. That land is worthy. That one deserves glory. And we get to forever sing his song. Worthy is the Lamb. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for the gift of your word. That in your mercy and grace you tell us the truth. You cut through the lies and the distraction and the denial, and you show us what's real. We are not you and we need you. But thank you that that's not the final thing you say to us. You also point us to your Son. Thank you for ministering elders for churches who do that ministry of coming to the weary and the heavy laden, to the unworthy and the weeping, and say, look right there. Behold the Lamb of God. Fix our eyes on Jesus, Lord. And as we look there, help us to see both the deepest reality that in our unworthiness at the right time, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And help us to see the joy in that that salvation invites us to be singers of your endless song. Worthy is the Lamb. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Thank you for loving us enough to make us singers of your endless song. We praise you in Jesus' name.